0: I believe we've got to focus on bringing heaven to earth. Not just enjoying heaven. I'm glad we enjoy the presence of God. I'm glad we enjoy heaven. But I want to see a world tr- filled with heaven. And God's way of doing that is building his house. So I want to, you know, for me, um, as we've been preaching about establishing foundations and building his house, we... Um, for me, anyway, I'm thinking in scripture, the stories of God's plan of salvation, which is told to us in multiple stories. And the story that's been in the, not just in the back of my mind, but percolating in my heart and my soul as we've been on this journey is the story around the books of Ezra and Nehemiah, where the Israelites come back from exile to rebuild God's temple and the, the, the city walls. And, I, and that's just, you know, I've, I've preached from it a few times, and others have mentioned it, but it's been percolating within me as I've preached. And, and, and uh, some time ago, when I first started looking at it, um, the uh, Ezra 3 particularly stood out for me, Ezra chapter 3. And Ezra chapter 3 has got the whole bit about the building of the altar, which we remember we did earlier this year, and also the building of the foundations. And... Um, it's been a very important chapter, but when I first looked at it, I thought I was going to preach a whole thing from it. Uh, but I never did get round to it because God started giving me other things. But I want to just draw attention. It's very practical. This is not kind of, I'm not going to try and inspire or kind of make you laugh or reach into the heavenlies. I'm just going to tell folks, this is what it, this is what's required to build God's house. Remember? The, the house of God is the gate of heaven. It brings heaven to earth. So I've got a powerpoint i've been very very naughty i mean i know i know i'm sorry ruth please be forgiving and forbearing i i you know sometimes we get told off for bringing it the day before or the day i just brought it like five minutes before you know i just remembered that it was there and asked dan very kindly to go and sort out for me so do not follow my example in this okay but thank you guys for being so patient with me anyway so I want, I, when I first read it, a number of things just immediately jumped out at me. This is not an exhaustive list of what's required for building God's house, but here's some of them. Before actually we read it, we um, look at the points. Let's just actually read from Ezra. Ezra chapter 3. We're going to read the whole chapter together. And I'm going to change my glasses a moment. So if you've got your Bibles with you or your phones or your tablets, whatever you've got, let's have a look at Ezra chapter 3. When the seventh month came, and the Israelites had settled in their towns, the people assembled as one man in Jerusalem. I'm sorry, I'm reading from an older version. I've got my dad's Bible. It's an older version of the NIV. It might look a little bit differently on there. Then Jeshua, son of Jozadak, and his fellow priests, and Zerubbabel, son of Jealtiel, and his associates, you're basically talking about leaders there, began to build the altar of God of the God of Israel, uh, to sacrifice burnt offerings on it in accordance with what is written in the Lord of Moses, the man of God. Despite their fear of the peoples around them, they built the altar on its foundation and sacrificed burnt offerings on it to the Lord, both the morning and the evening sacrifices. Then, in accordance with what is written, they celebrated the Feast of Tabernacles with the required number of burnt offerings prescribed for each day. After that, they presented the regular burnt offerings, the new moon sacrifices, and the sacrifices for all the appointed sacred feasts of the Lord, as well as those brought as free will offerings to the Lord. On the first day of the seventh month, they began to offer burnt offerings to the Lord, though the foundation of the Lord's temple had not yet been laid. Then they gave money to the masons and carpenters, and gave food and drink and oil to the people of Sidon and Tyre, so that they could bring... uh, see the logs by sea from Lebanon to Joppa as authorized by Cyrus, king of Persia in the second month of the second year after their arrival at the house of God in Jerusalem, So, Rubbabel, son of jaltiel Jeshua, son of Jozadak, and the rest of their brothers, the priests and the Levites and all who had returned from the captivity to Jerusalem probably in the King James versions it says the remnant we could say the remainers, but we better not anyway, uh, um, they They began, no, nothing political. They began the work appointing Levites, 20 years of age and older, to supervise the building of the house of the Lord. Jeshua and his sons and brothers, and Cadmiel and his sons, and the sons of Hanadad and their sons and brothers, all Levites, joined together in supervising those working on the house of God. When the builders laid the foundation of the temple of the Lord, The priests in their vestments and with trumpets, and the Levites, the sons of Asaph, with cymbals, took their places to praise the Lord as prescribed by David, king of Israel. With praise and thanksgiving, they sang to the Lord, He is good. His love to Israel endures forever. We've effectively been singing that this morning. And all the people gave a great shout of praise. Why don't we do that? And all the people gave a shout of praise to the Lord. Amen. (laughs) Praise God. Because the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid. But many of the older priests and Levites and family heads who had seen the former temple wept aloud when they saw the foundation of this temple being laid, while many others shouted for joy. No one could distinguish the sound of the shouts of joy from the sound of weeping, because the people made so much noise, and the sound was heard far away. Now, what I'm going to do very quickly is show you, these things kind of leapt out of me, maybe developed a little bit over time. Eight things. I'm just don't worry, I'm not gonna preach on all eight. I'm gonna tell you eight things that sprang out of me from this script um, scripture. By the way, it's not like it's not like um okay, here it's like here's a few points, apply these. It's like this you know when a story, if you're ever following a drama or a story a, a, a drama on TV, you get into the storyline, you, and you feel involved in the action. You feel involved in the story, and the story gets into you. That's what happens with the stories of Scripture. You you feel like you're a part of them, and they get into you, and they start shaping and forming you. It's, it's a bit like that. But nevertheless, let's just look very quickly at these eight principles from Ezra chapter 3. First of all, one of the things is there's authentic unity, or real unity. Did you notice the people assembled together? As one. So the first thing is authentic unity. Second thing is spiritual leadership. Notice it was uh, Jeshua and Zerubbabel. They were the leaders. And it was those who began to build. And then later on it talked about having leaders who supervised the building. If you want to build God's house you need spiritual leadership. Third thing is there needs to be biblical understanding. Did you notice the number of times it talked about in accordance with what is written? Or in the prescribed way. There was biblical understanding understanding to what they were doing fourth thing generous giving they gave money food drink oil they were generous in their giving number four is hard work the leaders and the people began the work it's repeated a number of times it's work building is hard work i did initially have in the sacrificial service and it does take sacrificial service but i wanted to get a bit more anglo-saxon about it and just it's hard work no, it's hard work building communities and it? it's hard work building church. We anyway, better move on quick. Uh, next one, multi-generational family. Did you notice it was the sons and the brothers building together with their sons? Now, I know it's very male in this because at this point in the story, it's a very patriarchal uh, society. Things have changed there, but it's this whole thing of a multi-generational family. This is not just for the old stooges or for the young books or for those in the middle. It's for everybody. It's multi-generational. Next one. Whole-hearted worship. Extravagant, exuberant, heartfelt worship. All the people gave a great shout of praise. And then I think it's a final one. Emotional engagement. No one could tell you there was weeping and there was shouts of joy. You see, when we're, in, we're building the house of God, we are emotionally It touches us at the deepest level. That's why there's shouting and that's why there's weeping. It's emotional. We feel invested in this. Now, you'll be pleased to know I'm not going to preach on all eight of those uh, this morning. What I'm hoping to do is say a little bit about four of them, the first four, um, and I might not even get, knowing me, I might not even get that far. I think Trevor over there is going to, I hope he's going to prod me, because you know, I do tend to get off on one sometimes with my points and then don't finish the thing, so um, so hopefully he'll give me a little nod or a prod or something. Um, if I I want to say something about the first one. So we, next slide, just put the first up. if we're going to build god 's house, folks, we need authentic unity I 'm using the word authentic as a bit of an in word, isn't it really but it's just like real unity, not pretend unity, not saying the right things, uh, not just with our words, but real heart unity. my friends it's essential it, it is absolutely essential, and the the process of getting there may at times be challenging and painful but it's essential if we're going to build God's house it has to be unity and unity does not mean uniformity unity does not mean agreeing on everything but it does mean a joining of heart and an agreeing of heart and mind on the essentials on the vision we're together with one heart let's say let's see what scripture says about unity if we want to turn to um ephesians chapter 4 i mean uh, Dan has been encouraging us to read Ephesians, and Ephesians is great about talking about building the church and what the church is like. It really does give you a heavenly vision. You see, this is why I wanted to—I wanted to, to bring this right back down to earth because Paul does that. He paints this glorious, amazing picture, uh, a heavenly picture of the church, but then he brings it right down to earth. And, and here's one of the ways in which he brings it down to earth. Ephesians 4 it says, "As a prisoner of the Lord." To tell you what's really down to earth for him, he's in prison for this gospel. I mean, that's really down to earth. As a prisoner uh, for the Lord, then. I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the spirit through the bond of peace. Please notice it says, unity takes effort. Make every effort to keep, to maintain just, and this is just bottom level. This is just the unity of just good relationships. Of not, you know, not harboring things against one another. When, when something goes wrong, we deal with it. Okay. It's, that's just basic stuff. He says, at least maintain that. It's all about relationship. Church is all about relationship, relationship with God, relationship with one another. So maintain that through the bond of peace. There will be peace in God's house. My friends, if we're going to have unity, sometimes there's things you've got to, just let go of things you've got to lay down. Things sometimes you've got to give up. You've got to give up the right to be right sometimes. Because unity, peace matters more. And, and, and my friends, and I, again, I know this is this is very earthy. But the, the reality is when they were trying to build a temple, they were off, there was an enemy that was trying to stop the building. There was an enemy that was constantly trying to stop the building. And this, and this is the one way he would do. He'll divide it. Now we know that unity by way is essential because Jesus says this was, a house divided against itself cannot stand. That's why it's essential. And there was an enemy trying to divide it. Now, I want to just say this to you. I know this sounds hard, but these are things that I was taught as a young disciple. I've held on to them. I believe they're true. You've got to be careful. You're building God's house. Be careful what you listen to. Be careful who you listen to and be careful how you listen. What you listen to, don't just be listening to the negative and the critical stuff. Be careful who you listen to. If people have got all that stuff in them and just leaking it all out, you've got to be careful. And equally, if you've got some of that stuff in, you've got to be careful how you're listening. You're not just listening to get, what's it called, confirmation bias. You know, because of how you're listening. We've all of us got to be careful of this stuff. And by the way, we're all capable of being led astray by that stuff. And the thing to do is simply this, where if you've got an issue with somebody, whether it's the leader or anybody, you come and talk it through. Have an honest and healthy conversation. But be careful how you listen because there's an enemy who wants to divide and a house divided against itself cannot stand. You know, this is just maintaining, I love what the, uh, the message says about this as well. By the way, let me just read you just a brief one from the message. He says, um, pouring yourselves out. We had this whole thing of cascading and pouring today. Well, how, it's not just pouring from heaven, it pours out from us. Pour yourselves out for each other in acts of love. Alert at noticing differences and quick at mending fences. I think we've had that before, haven't we? Alert at noticing differences. And when there's a difference, be quick at mending fences. But that's just basic unity. That's unity of the Spirit. In Ephesians 4, it talks about going on. Look at verse 13 with me to something even deeper and greater. Um, Where are we? Verse 13. Until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God, becoming mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. That is the church fully formed and fully developed. Not twisted and contorted and dislocated and disabled and constantly self-harming. Body of Christ is like that sometimes. He says, "No, this is to be a body that's fully formed and fully developed." Again, I love how the message puts it. Uh, it. I like it because it sounds like dancing. He says, "Until we're all moving rhythmically and easily with each other, efficient and graceful in response to God's Son, fully matured adults, fully developed within and without, fully alive." in Christ, loved into life. Now, how do we get from the basic unity? Because we're not just maintaining, we're building, we're growing. How do we get to the unity of faith? Well, Ephesians 4 teaches it's through spiritual leadership. So that takes me on to my second point, and I want to just say something about spiritual leadership. Why do I call it spiritual? Why do I not just say leadership, apart from the fact that all my points have two words? Why, why, why do I call it spiritual leadership? Well, first of all, it's because the church of Christ is a spiritual house. 1 uh, Peter chapter 2, it talks about we're all built as living stones being built into God's spiritual house. You see, the church is not just like any organization. It's not like any other organization. There are organizational dimensions to it. And we can learn from general leadership and management skills. But it's essentially a spiritual house. You're dealing with... Sp- you're dealing with the way, the purposes and the ways of the Holy Spirit. You're dealing with people's hearts and spirits, and in the leadership. You, that, so that one reason why leadership is spiritual. But there's another reason. In um, I noticed, by the way, know, let me say something about one Corinthians. If you read one Corinthians, basically what one Corinthians is is a leader, a spiritual leader, writing to a house, um, a church which is divided, messed up, It's all over the place. I mean, it seems very, very spiritual, but actually it's pretty messed up. It's divided. And Paul is writing to that and he says, I could not address you as spiritual. I had to address you as babes. I said, I could not address you as spiritual. And and he says, he says this in the previous chapter. He says, a spiritual person, spiritual man, this this spiritual person discerns all things. So you need, a, a leader needs to be able to discern what the, what's going on in the Holy Spirit. Here's another one: Galatians chapter six. Paul writes, he says, um, "Well, in Corinthians first, in Corinthians first four, they're, they're so bad they're fighting one another that actually they're taking each other to court." And Paul says, uh, "Is there nobody spiritual among you who can deal with this?" In Galatians chapter six, he says, um, "Those who, are, if somebody's caught in sin, those who, who are spiritual should restore him gently." In other words, not somebody who's going to jump down his throat, not somebody who's going to be all emotionally reactive to it, but somebody who's going to seek to be led by the Spirit. Now, I'm I'm trying to use this word spiritual. In newer versions of the NIV, you may have noticed, it speaks about those who are led by the Spirit. Now, of course, that should be true of all of us, but you certainly want your leaders to be seeking to be led by the Spirit. And in Corinth, they're all kind of fighting each other. But Paul comes along and says, "No, no, 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 no! It's not about Paul, Apollos, Peter, whatever." And he just brings a spiritual wisdom to it. He's not going to be affected by all the emotional stuff that's going on. He's seeking always. What is the word that's come to us again and again? What is the Spirit saying? What is the Holy Spirit doing? Being led by the Holy Spirit doesn't mean you get all the charismatic heebie-jeebies. It means it means that you you're seeking to be led. By the Spirit in everything that you're doing. Do you remember about this time last year when Ashish and Dennis, who are over in Manchester, by the way, at the moment, but they came to us this time last year and they brought Ashish brought this wonderful word about the eagle. And he's bringing this whole thing. Our struggle is not against flesh and blood, it's against principalities and powers. And the eagle is not like the chicken who keeps on fighting with the other chickens. He rises above that and, and, and defeats an enemy, drops the snake there. You need... We all need to be like this, but you certainly need your leaders to be those who are seeking always to be led by the Spirit. And to see, what, Holy Spirit, what are you saying? What are you doing? We want to be in step with that. Now, let me give you another picture. Um, there's a beautiful verse in, in Colossians chapter 3, verse 15. It says, let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. You see, a leader... Needs to be operating from a place of peace. So he's not caught up with all the emotional stuff. He's operating from, or he or she or they are brought, operating from a place of peace. It says, let the peace of Christ rule. One writer puts it, there's to be a non-anxious presence. It's, it's, a, it's a challenge sometimes. But, um, think about it. Like the, the word says, let the peace of Christ rule in your heart. It says, it means this. Let the, many commentators have pointed out, let the peace of Christ act like an umpire. Or a referee. And it just you've seen it. A cricket match. Who watches cricket? Don't know why, but anyway. Um, <laughs> when you watch cricket, you know a call has been out, 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 and everybody's looking at the umpire. And some of the players might even get into the umpire's face. Come on, it's out. It was out, out, and the umpire just says, "Is that what he does? Yeah, that me now Whatever, whatever he does." But see, you even notice it even more in a football match. You know, the referee's got to make a call, got to make a decision. And everybody, both teams are in their face. Oh, it was a, it was a foul. No, it wasn't a foul. Blah, blah, blah. And then you've got the people in the stand. The refs, Well, you get the idea anyway. <laughs> and, and, and basically, the ref, the umpire, is surrounded by different voices pulling different ways. And he just has to make from a place of peace, no matter what, everybody else is shouting at him, is to make a decision. Now, don't hear me wrong here. I don't believe that we're still in the days of like, one man like Moses going up to the mountain and hearing the word of the Lord and coming and telling everybody. We believe in team leadership. And we believe in listening. Because you can hear the voice of the Spirit in the dialogue, in the conversation, in the collective wisdom. And so you do listen But a leader has to, at the end of the day, because people will pull you all kinds of different ways and got all different voices and feelings and emotions. And notice they were surrounded by fear, it said. There can be anxiety. And a leader's got to say, Holy Spirit, what are you saying? What are you doing? We want to follow you. Please don't interpret that as not caring, not listening. It's just, we ought to hear the voice of the Holy Spirit. Now, all of us have got to live like, life like that. But certainly, if you're going to build God's house, you've got to be like that. I meant to say earlier about the unity. Do you know what? If, you're, if, if all we're concerned about is having a few meetings which people have come along to, unity doesn't matter. But if you want to build God's house, unity is essential. And equally, if, if you don't mind a little bit of argy-bargy and all that kind of stuff, if that's all you're interested in, just if you, then okay. But if you're, if you're interested in building God's house, we need spiritual leadership. Third thing, biblical understanding. I've got a feeling I'm only going to get three down, but we'll see. <laughs> biblical understanding. Did you notice how many times it said, as it was written, as it's written. And um, in other words, what they were building and what they were doing was in accordance with what scripture had revealed about the plan of God. And I know in recent years maybe some of us may have had at times a little bit of a downer or seemed that we're having a little bit of a downer on scripture because we realized scripture can be sometimes used legalistically and dogmatically and to hit one another with rather than for unity and um i i i was amongst those certainly who um wanted to steer away from that because this scripture was constantly a challenge to me. In John five, I think it's verse thirty nine. It says Jesus challenging the Pharisees and the scribes, i.e., those who like the written stuff. He says, um, uh, "This all got on You diligently study the scriptures because you think that by them you have life. But these scriptures are about me, and yet you refuse to come to me to find life. And it, it bothered me because I love scripture. I love studying and reading scripture." And it bothered me, I could do all of that. I could diligently study the scriptures. I could be really, really biblical and miss Jesus. The Pharisees not only missed Jesus, they were ones, they were ones who crucified Jesus. The ones who diligently studied the scriptures. But please do notice, there's got to be a balance here. Please do notice, Jesus did say in that time, in those words, these scriptures are about me. So these scriptures are about me. Jesus said. So, even though we don't want, we don't want to use this legalistically, we don't want to use this dogmatically, but we do want to find Jesus in the scriptures. Otherwise it becomes a Jesus of our own imagining, of our own experience, our reflection of what we want, rather than the Jesus who is written about in the scriptures. You know, the other thing about this as well, the reason why it's important to know what's written, it enables you to understand what's happening to you in the context of the big purposes of God. They were rebuilding the house because Jeremiah and Ezekiel had prophesied about it. That's they, And they understood that. I was recently reading in the Gospels. Thank you, Sarah, for reminding us to read the Gospels, to look at Jesus. God spoke to me some months ago. The very same thing it says in Hebrews 12, which Richard, Richard, by the way, was encouraging us to read God's story together. And, and he said, and he got us into Hebrews 12, you know, fixing your eyes on Jesus. In the message version again, when it says, consider him, the message version translates it like this. Study him. See how he did it. So I've been looking at the Gospels and I'm looking at the beginning of Mark. And it talks about John the Baptist. And it says, and as it was written, a voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare ye the way of the Lord. And he, and he takes verses from different prophets in the Old Testament. And they're applied, the gospel writer that is, and they're applied to John the Baptist. Why, and, and the commentator said something like this. He said, John the Baptist, you know, John the Baptist was a great man. The greatest of all the Old Testament prophets. I know he was at the beginning of the New Testament, but he seems the greatest of the of the prophets who led up to him. And yet really, if you look at it, in the whole drama of God's story, he has only a bit part, doesn't he really? It's only a small little bit. And not only that, it starts off looking great because he's out in the desert baptizing people and the crowd just says the whole towns were turning up to meet him. This is a great ministry. I mean, it's very successful ministry. And Jesus comes along and he's pointing at Jesus all the time and then he baptizes Jesus and there is the crowd start to leave him. And his disciples start to leave him. Doesn't the ministry going so well now. Not only that, but he ends up in prison. Not only that. He loses his head, and you could think—I mean, obviously, he couldn't think after he lost his head. But you know, he—you he, he, um, know—he must have thought, sat in the prison. What happened to my ministry? What happened to my big desert ministry? People come, but he didn't because he knew from the scriptures he was just a voice of one calling in the desert, "Prepare ye the way of the Lord." And my friends, when we know the scriptures, whatever's happening. We 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 understand what we're doing and where we're at in light with the whole purposes of God, which are centered on Jesus and the scriptures revealed to us. So it really does help. Not only have we got to get into the scriptures, we've got to let the scriptures get into us. Yeah, so in one of those, it is written. And notice this, Jesus loved the scriptures. When he's at his most vulnerable in the desert, being tempted, what does he do? Three times, says, it is written. It is written. And one of the things he says, it is written. Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Three prophets at very difficult and challenging times. Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and John on the Isle of Patmos, the guy who wrote the book of Revelation. God said to them, eat this word. It wasn't enough for them to make notes on it. It wasn't enough for them to to listen to the sermon. It wasn't enough just to do the daily devotional reading. He says, I want you to eat this word. I want to get it into you. I know when you read Revelation, you think that John was also eating a few magic mushrooms as well. But but, but, you know, he says, get this word into you because this word forms you and shapes you and strengthens you. Helps you to understand what it is we're doing within the light of the whole purposes of God. But it keeps you strong and it keeps you in good shape. Again, if you... Want to be, I really ought to follow my notes sometimes. If you want to be, if you just want to be chasing the latest charismatic ministry, or whatever success from the time, then okay. But if you want to build God's house, you need to understand what is written. I forgot one point. I want to go back to spiritual leadership. Did you notice it said, those who were 20 years older, and more supervise the work they led. One point is this, my friends. We have got to see as a church a whole new generation of leaders being equipped and raised up. Leaders in the world, leaders in the church, and yes, those who believe they're called to church leadership. We need to see them raised up and equipped. And I can promise you that whatever else we do moving forward, um, I will make it personally a priority that that is what we do. And I know that will be the heart of all the leaders, but I'm going to make it a priority that we work towards seeing new leaders raised up. I want to talk about generous giving. I so want to talk about generous giving, but you think I should do it? You, you're going to prod me? Uh, yeah, I want to break bread as well, though. So yeah. Give me five minutes on generous giving, <laughs> and then I'll take it up again. You don't mind breaking bread at 12, uh, 12 o'clock, do you? No. Oh, that's right. Yeah, okay. Sorry? It'd be better because the children are back in. That's it. Led by the Spirit here, hearing the voice. Uh, That's good. (laughs) <laughs> that's my first minute, alright, thanks for the prod there quickly, Actually, I only want to say a little bit about it because we're going to have to do some teaching on this you know, you ever seen in those films where there's a, know, an earthquake or a twister or a tidal wave or something and, and people are holding on to important things to them like their children, for example or, or, or heirlooms or something but in the storm and in the earthquake or whatever they let go of stuff when the storm comes and we've gone through a storm of shaking. If you're not careful, you can, you can let go of stuff. And when it comes to, this church has traditionally taught tithing. And that means literally giving a tenth of, uh, our income. And we have very, very clear teachings on about like the, you know, God came before the tax man and all this. And there's a distinction between tithes and offerings. It's traditionally we're not teaching now. <clears throat> it could well be, I know it could well be, I don't know. That we shift on some things, aspects of that, or it could well be that we reestablish that. That's as the teaching of the, uh, the the leadership, anyway. Some of you, some people I know have been reconsidering about that. Here's, I, I, I want to, I just want to say to you, if you're reconsidering your whole understanding of tithing, make sure it's not just letting go of something in the storm. Make sure it's a real prayerful, studied, honest before God. Reconsideration, not just doing, letting go of something or doing it because it's convenient. I really want to talk to, this is just in relation to, um, tithing. I mean, the, the principles of giving are very clear and we're going to have to do a full, we'll do a TTE on it or something. But let's just say this, let's speak to three groups of people. One, those of you who are still convinced that the scripture teaches tithing, then you should continue, as Paul says to Timothy, you should continue in what you're convinced of. It's a matter of conscience. It's a matter of faith. It's a matter of integrity. If you still believe that, continue to do it. Secondly, if you're somebody who's genuinely reconsidering and think, actually, you know, and I hear the, I hear the different arguments. I understand them. I'm not, you know, I'm not ignoring them. You know what? Um, maybe it's it's just Old Testament. It's not so much in the new. So, well, okay. All I'm saying is, please make sure that's not just you letting go of something out of convenience or because of the pressures. Do it in a prayerful study. Dialogue with people. Listen carefully. Study the word. Pray about it. Make sure it's genuine reconsideration. And then there's a third group of people, those who perhaps are completely new to this, and in this time haven't heard much stuff on tithing and giving or whatever. Well, again, we, I would just encourage you to, again, listen to what we teach. Don't feel under any pressure about it. And if you say, well, I, gosh, I couldn't ever give a... 10% or whatever, well, that's okay. Start where you can. But these are principles of giving. I'm just going to mention these quickly, and I'm going to have a quick look at 2 Corinthians chapter 9. Um, this is the key scripture about giving. All giving should be generous. This is just a biblical principle. I haven't got a chance time to look at all the scriptures, but it should be generous. It should be sacrificial, not in the sense that we're silly about it and give ourselves into debt. But sacrificial at the point of, David says, I will not bring to the Lord anything that costs me nothing. So sacrificial. It should be consistent. And that's what Paul, writing to two in 2 Corinthians chapter 8 and chapter 9, is doing. saying, be consistent in what you've decided. And thirdly, and this is the scripture, 2 Corinthians 9 verse 7, it should come from a quality decision of the heart. It's not just, oh, because tithing is, the basic principle behind tithing is give God off the, off the top. Give God the best. Don't just give him the fag end kind of coins in your pocket or what have you, or what you've got left at the end of the month. Make a quality decision about what you're giving. I'm just, I'm just saying, follow these principles. The rest of the stuff we can teach on, but follow these principles. And the key principle is this. 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 7. Each man and each person should give what he or she has decided in his or her heart to give, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And we're not going to use, by the way, as has happened in the past, God loves a cheerful giver to try to just manipulate you into giving more. Because that, that misses the whole point of that verse if we do that. And this, by the way, is why I asked uh, Ruth, take up the offering early on, please, because I don't want anybody to think I'm teaching on this just to get you to increase your offering. No, this is the whole point of this verse is nobody's manipulating you. You're just deciding before God, Lord, this is what I'm going to give wherever that's at for you right now, okay? But give what you've decided in your heart to give, not reluctantly or under compulsion. I told you I was going to bring things right down to earth, didn't I? can't get much more earthy than money, okay? But it's important, folks, because heaven is coming to earth through God's house. And I I want in a couple of weeks to talk about the other four, if I can. But right now, we need, if we're going to build God's house, oh, by the way, on the generous giving, if you're okay with some kind of ropey outfit stuck together by sticky tape, then okay. But if you want to build God's house, we need generous giving. God, has, in his wisdom, has ordained it so that we bring our tithes and our givings as an expression of worship, thanks, and trust in God. And through, But at the same time, through doing that, he helps to resource his church and advance his kingdom. That's God's wisdom. So, um, but you pray about it before your heart, but we need authentic unity, spiritual leadership, biblical understanding, generous giving. I don't think I need to turn to the scripture. I think I can do it from memory. I've said something about giving. What I really want us to do now as we take bread and wine, and I hope the musicians don't mind, uh, continuing for a little bit longer and we'll get the children in and we'll bring the bread and the wine out and we'll just finish with that because I want to stop talking about our giving now and just talk about his giving. Because scriptures again in 2 Corinthians chapter 8 it says, though he was rich yet for our sakes he became poor. That through his poverty we might become rich. He's given us so much. This is not to try and get, because we are taking up the offering, this is not to try to get you to give. This is just because we want to give thanks to the one who's given us so much. But all of these things folks are needed if we're going to build God's house. And we are going to build God's house. And he's going to come and as, as Sara said last week he's gonna come and fill it with his presence. Amen.